0: Welcome to The Entrepreneur, conversations with entrepreneurs who view their past failures as learning experiences rather than setbacks. Today's guest on The Entrepreneur, Julia Leisman, founder of Preline, a predictive analytics platform for fashion brands.
1: We 100% went into it saying, this is a fantastic idea. I still think it's a fantastic idea. And quite honestly, I think that the reason why we have had trouble succeeding within the fashion industry is that not always just because something makes sense from a business perspective, that doesn't mean that it will be successful and that it will be easy to sell into a bigger corporation.
0: Now, here's the host of The Entrepreneur, Ashley Breed. Julia, can you start by giving us a little bit of a quick intro about what
1: Preline is? Yes, of course. So Preline is a predictive analytics platform for fashion brands so that they can better understand what to buy and where to send it in terms of their inventory So what that looks like from a product perspective is we essentially built an environment where the user can come engage with the merchandise that has yet to hit the stores and say what they love, what they don't love, they can socialize with it. And that interaction that the customer is able to conduct with the future merchandise feeds into an algorithm on our back end, which then projects out, here's what we predict will sell. And that algorithm not only takes into account that interaction that the user performs on the items, it also takes into account historical selling data. So it's really matching up uh, merchandise planning that we've always conducted before within fashion brands where we're able to say based on historical selling what we'll sell and we're matching it with consumer demand and interest which is more forward-looking.
0: I mean so it sounds great on paper uh, <laughs> maybe just dive in with how come it didn't translate?
1: yeah you know i think as you said it sounds good on paper and this is we 100 percent went into it saying this is a fantastic idea i still think it's a fantastic idea to be fair <laughs> and quite honestly i think that the reason why we have had trouble succeeding within the fashion industry is that not always just because something makes sense from a business perspective that doesn't mean that it will be successful and that it will be easy to sell into a bigger corporation. I think that there are many dynamics that come into play when someone within a bigger corporation is deciding to purchase your B2B tool. And those factors don't always center around, is this the best tool for my company's success? And they can actually be different factors that might be a little bit more personal and might be a little bit closer connected to the person's individual role within that firm. So I think that's where we struggled the most.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that. Are you saying it was sort of some biases that were on the other side of the table in accepting your model, or was it more around personal preference or uh, failure, you know, sort of a unwillingness
1: to adopt a new model? You know, it's interesting. I think that there is an unwillingness to accept a new model. Typically, people fear change. But they don't love change. And so when you come with something that is inherently asking them to change their process, that's a really big ask. It's a really big ask to get a firm to say, okay, I'm going to change my process in order to use your tool. And I think that the main reason why that is is so hard to get over the line is because they essentially are sticking their necks out on the line for you. So if they continue forward with their process as they've always run it and that process gets them mediocre results it's the process that has always been done and so it's not necessarily going to be their neck on the line or you know it's people aren't going to be pointing fingers at them saying you did this wrong now if they decide to change that process if they say i would like to use preline And I think that this is the new way of doing things. And we should inherently change the way that we're looking at merchandise planning. And it doesn't work, which is a risk, right? They would be taking that risk. Then it is their neck on the line. And someone can come directly back to them and say, it was you who said that we should do this and it didn't work. And it's your fault that it didn't work. And so I think that is a really big ask. So Not necessarily saying that there were differing interests, it's just even though you can go in and show them the numbers to say, we've proven out that this will work, there's always going to be that trepidation in terms of, do we actually want to try something new?
0: Yeah, I think overcoming objections is sort of like a sales-driven mantra. Did you, and you said we,
1: did you have a partner on this? I did, I did. Two partners on this, actually. So two co-founders, and they were both absolutely fantastic. Did you guys, what about a sales background
0: or finding that pitch as you kind of encountered those obstacles and objections?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So none of us had a particularly strong sales background. So when you look at kind of the profile of the co-founders, we had Karen who had a background in merchandise planning, so she very much so understood our end user, their pain points, how to speak to them. We had David who had always come from inventory planning. And so he was really the one who, you know, he's our CEO. He had the vision for this is how we can advance inventory planning and really was the brains behind the, you know, the model that we built out and how we could project forward and really get quite accurate in our predictions in terms of what would sell. And then I was coming more from the product background. So how can we actually build this as a digital tool that you know we can get users to engage with? And to your point, we didn't have someone who came with just a really strong sales background. That was an element that we were almost missing from the founding team.
0: But I often find that many entrepreneurs feel like the product will speak for itself. The results will speak for themselves. We don't need to focus on selling, selling, selling. It's a pretty compelling idea. The data's there. It all makes sense. So in some regards, you know, I think sometimes it can be successful without a salesperson. But do you find that one of the drawbacks or downfalls was
1: part of the pitch process? Or what would you attribute sort of the lack of traction to? Yeah, 100%. I think that a major contributor was the fact that we, in the early days, had a lot of trepidation around going to the buying consumer, which was the brand. Mm. And we wanted everything to be perfect when we were going into those conversations. And we almost felt like we needed the product to be successful already in order to land those initial you know, initial users and initial champions, and I would say that was that was one of our biggest mistakes. So what we did in the beginning was we really focused on the end user being the customer coming through and engaging with the merchandise. We thought if we can prove this out, then it's an easy sales pitch, right? We will prove out that they are willing to come through with no monetary incentivization. They're willing to engage. And then if we can show that our numbers were actually accurate in terms of predicting what would sell, it's a no-brainer. Of course, the brands will buy it. And this was really a big mistake because you learn so much from those interactions with the brands and that helps to drive the product direction and really the strategic direction of the company. And we didn't get to those conversations until we had invested a lot of time, a lot of money, into building this substantial solution that was able to show hey here we've proven that it works right and then what we heard back from the brands was ah oh, but I actually want something slightly different so you were building it for both the sort of the
0: customer and both your end users were really the brands and their customers as well interesting would you have done it would you maybe would you've gone to the brands first or developed a prototype and kind of a white label with one of the brands or would you have done it the same way, but just waited longer?
1: Nope. I would have gone to the brand first. And this is the biggest lesson that I always tell founders now is really understand who is your paying customer. So who's your paying end user? (laughs) We always knew that the, the customer in, in, in this scenario, right? The person who's just engaging with the merchandise, they were never going to pay for that experience. That was never in the business model. It was always going to be the brand who is paying and What we could have done in a much leaner fashion, which I kick myself about all the time now because, you know, of course I read the Lean Startup at the start of building Preline and thought I was internalizing the lessons learned. And then in retrospect, (laughs) it's always 2020. And what we should have done is gone to the brands with a deck that outlined what we were going to build and gotten their feedback on that initial model and built from there. And that actually was what ended up selling was we went in and pitched a boil down solution of what we had actually built. And that boiled down solution was not something that we'd actually developed yet. We just showed it in a GIF format that we created in PowerPoint. And that is what sold. And that was that big aha moment of you don't need the perfect product. You don't need all these stats. You need buy-in from your paying user to be successful and then you can go from there and scale from there
0: yeah it sounds also like you know you looked at those the non-paying customers as kind of low stakes to test this out and be a beta group but interestingly enough kind of it never quite translated or got you what you needed which was just put your neck on the line go in there with what you've got rip the band-aid drop the towel and just here's what the prototype looks like here's what we're trying to build this is what we're trying to do thoughts you know you exactly along
1: for the ride here I love that analogy of drop the towel <laughs> unfortunately sometimes how you feel as a founder
0: <laughs> it's true I mean it, it's ugly it's warts and all it's not pretty it's what we're working with and this is it um yep. I hope you'll like me anyway <laughs> so Julia I wanted to kind of transition a little bit and talk about some of those founder dynamics and you know you mentioned the three of you Everybody's bringing in a really special skill set that really seems to line up with you. What would you, how would you kind of have described yourself in, as your role, maybe before starting this, before starting PreLine or co-founding it?
1: Interesting. In in my role, just... How would you describe yourself? You know, before starting PreLine, I I had a background in strategy consulting and entrepreneurship. So I, I worked at other startups before coming to preline i i most certainly would have described myself as entrepreneurial and still do <laughs> and i think that is just that muscle of every time you think of an idea kind of the next step that you come to is what we what can we do next right so wh- how can we test this how can we prove this out and i'd always kind of been been doing that i mean honestly from a young age when i started a cuffling company and sold Sculpy cufflinks to my dad's suit maker, <laughs> who would then sell them to his clients. So so I would say that that's how I would kind of describe my profile was coming from, you know, a background of entrepreneurship, of kind of product, so of digital product, as well as coming from a background of digital marketing. So I also had exposure to digital marketing and um, running marketing for a startup as well. Do you define yourself any
0: differently today?
1: That's an interesting question. I I very much so still define myself as an entrepreneur, and that that really hasn't changed. And quite honestly, I wouldn't say that going through the experience of building PreLine and having it not turn into the billion-dollar business that we envisioned. I don't think that inherently changed the way that I see myself as an entrepreneur. I think that when I look back, I Definitely see areas where I was able to grow as an entrepreneur through learning, through these experiences, through through the failures. The, the part where I would say I've added now is I, I'm more of an advisor, so I do help to advise other startups at this point now. And that's mainly from those learnings that I had to learn the hard way. I try as much as possible to pass them on to other people who are venturing down that road because it's a difficult road and you're learning a lot of, you know, you're learning a lot of this on your own (laughs) and you're learning a lot of it through failure. And so having a network of advisors that, that I had with Preline, you know, being able to turn around and and help other founders in a similar way, I think is just so impactful. And I think that's the very special nature of the entrepreneurial community in general.
0: And I think you kind of called it out a little bit as well of you're going through so many learnings and you're on your own and it can be, you know, if you're coupling kind of learnings or couching them as failures, as part of learnings and you're by yourself or you're, you know, with a small team, it can be incredibly compound, you know, that that can compound on you of feeling like you're failing and feeling like you're alone. Did you guys face any of that or feel any of that?
1: No, most certainly when, you know, when you're, coming up against some of the harder questions and you're not agreeing as a founding team, it's sometimes difficult to know what is the right direction to head in. I, I mean, you know, I know that some founders that they struggle with their founding teams and that, that's a challenge point for them. I, that is one area where I've felt incredibly lucky with the founding team that we had for Preline because When we did hit those moments of we don't necessarily know the right direction to go in and we somewhat disagreed on which direction to go in, we would, you know, we would certainly duke it out, right? And and we would, you know, have long, long, long conversations trying to, uh, you know, convince the other party. We were so passionate about it. But what was incredible was we could come back the next day and say, you know, okay, I've thought about it. And and the other party would say, okay, I've thought about it. And and then we would come to an agreement in terms of the direction we were moving in and we would head in that direction. And that was where I, I think we really were successful was that dynamic within the founding team to be able to come to a head on certain things, not necessarily know if it's the right direction because we don't have all the resources available to us have a disagreement about it, but then come together and say, okay, we're going in this direction. We're all aligned and forced forward.
0: Well, that's good. I think sometimes three can be difficult. You know, I mean, I don't know if three is actually better maybe than two because you're never kind of stuck in a 50-50 one or the other. You sort of always get a majority somehow. So I think that, that there are some benefits to that. What, how did you guys make the decision collectively to shut down? or was it collective
1: you know that's it's somewhat of a difficult question because i would say that preline is still in what investors like to call the land of the walking dead <laughs> <laughs> where we haven't actually fully shut down we before covid hit actually had a steady stream of paying paying clients which was fantastic not enough to support Full time incomes for the founding team, but we did have enough to sustain the company and to continue to be somewhat successful. And the reason why I say it's the land of the walking dead is, you know, it's projecting out. It was, we, when we started the company, of course, you start with these grand ambitions of how it's going to scale and how it's going to grow. And where Preline is today, it's been successful. But it's not looking like it's going to really scale the way that we had initially projected. And of course, now that COVID has hit, you know, it's it's a little bit of a kiss of death because majority of the fashion brands are now just struggling to keep their head above water. And so talking about predictive analytics for their industry, they're trying to figure out how to get the inventory they have on the floor currently off the floor. So... <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just difficult to answer that question because we we haven't actually, you know, we've seen the Grim Reaper, we've
0: come you know, close,
1: and we, you know, we still kind of continue to just stagger on, but it's not, you know, it's not in a state where we can go to, you know, venture investors and say, okay, we're ready for our Series A now. So, very much so in the land of the walking dead.
0: Well, so do you think that there would come a time where you guys would make a decision to go, you know, one way or another, you know, kind of invest more resources or is
1: it, is it status quo for the Hirano? It It kind of is, yeah. And quite honestly, the reason why is that, I guess at least my outlook on it is if we can charge current clients that we have and we can continue to bring in some revenue, um, then we get closer to being able to pay off our investors, our initial investors. And I do actually see that as a duty of the founder not to just kind of throw up my hands and say, okay, we tried, uh, it didn't work, and I'm sorry, your money is gone. So So that really is, in my mind, kind of the intent of continuing forward in this fashion is to make sure that we get our investors paid off. But, you know, once that happens, yeah, I, I could see that happening.
0: Well, who knows? You know, we just, I think there's other external forces at work again with the retail industry and the pandemic. So, hard to say. Exactly. Exactly. So, you mentioned, you know, kind of your work in mentoring with other entrepreneurs. What are some of your key keys to the game, keys to entrepreneurship,
1: or keys to not
0: failing that you impart with those?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, it it involves being really realistic about your assumptions and risks in the beginning and finding the leanest way possible to test those assumptions and risks. That's the biggest piece of advice that I would grant upon a founder because when you're starting a company, you do need the grand vision, and it's fantastic to have the grand vision of, we are building a billion-dollar company here. I, you know, Of course, you wouldn't quit your job and <laughs> go eat ramen every night if you didn't think it had the potential to be this, this massive opportunity. And that's fantastic. And keep that conviction. That's, that's what makes it all worthwhile, quite honestly. That's, that's why you dive into it. At the same time, you have to be realistic. About here's my grand vision, I'm so excited about it. And also, here are all the risks that stand in my way from getting from here to my billion dollar vision. And making sure not to just take the approach of, you know, here are the risks, for example, I need to build an application. So the next step is building that application. Try to kind of break it down and say, okay, is the risk is building the application. What are the risks associated with that? Right? Is it the fact that users will actually download your app? How can we test that in a week? Right? How can we test that in a week? And there are ways that you can test that in a week. You just have to get creative about thinking about that kind of lean way that you can get users to adopt and say yes. And it goes past going to your friends and saying, hey, do you think that you would download this app? Because most of your friends will say to you, yes, of course, that's a great idea. I'll download the app, right? You need to get to the point where someone is actually, you really are testing the risks in the environment that the user would be found in. So our example with Preline is having a fashion brand say, yes, I will pay you to use this platform. I will pay you, I will dedicate you Know that I will work with you once it's available, right? I will sign a contract. If you're in a B2C business, I typically encourage companies, for example, put up a landing page using Squarespace. It costs about $15 a month. Put up your value proposition and have a button that says, you know, it costs X amount, buy today. And the user can click on that button, and the next screen they get to, you say, we're not actually ready yet, but thank you so much for your interest. But you know what? At least you got someone to show intent. They showed interest. They showed, I am willing to potentially pay $12 for this item and send that, you know, landing page out via a Facebook or Google ad, put maybe $50 to $100, sort it, and see how many people you get clicking through. And so it's, you know, it's kind of taking that grand vision, breaking it down into those risks. And then finding a way to say, okay, how do we start to just test those risks in in the leanest way possible? Did you
0: have any really hard days? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) What made them hard? What were some things you want to touch upon or go in, if you have anything to share, kind of just a really tough
1: day? Oh, yeah. I, I think probably the hardest days were the days when we would get so close. We'd get so close to that person saying, I'm going to be your champion within this big fashion brand. Right. And it took so long to get there and you had to go through so many people and you had to put together so many decks and convince everyone. And then, you know, at that final moment, they said, no, that was really hard because it was almost like there was this glimmer, right. Of, of this massive company. And if this massive company signed on then the smaller ones would follow and, and this happened to us several times, and and those were really hard days.
0: Did you, know, kind of, I think at the time it probably feels like rubbing salt in the wound, but I think it's actually pretty useful to seek that feedback of exactly why are you saying no to this, and not in a confrontational way, but just as a, how can we improve? Did you guys seek out that direct feedback?
1: We did. We did, actually. And that that is what helped to lead us to kind of that the version that currently is is being sold today. And the feedback that we received was actually, we had made the product overly complicated. Oh, my Lord, what a punch in the gut. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They wanted a much more simplified interface. They wanted to really understand all of the metrics and, and we had made it overly complicated. And so we actually had to go back and strip out a lot of the features that we had added to make it a much more simplified selling proposition. I mean, what, what we sell now is really quite simple and what we're offering, but that's what the brands want because they can get their head around it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, pre lunch just keeps on cooking, keeps on plugging. I love it. What are you up to now? Uh, So when did you kind of start something new or where are you? I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so when I started something new, I actually went to the software consultancy that we had used to build out Preline, the platform. And that was just a fantastic transition from working on Preline because the CEO of the software consultancy, you know, had an invested interest in Preline being successful. And so I was able to you know, still spend some time on Preline while also working full-time at the software consultancy. And then it also gave me the opportunity to work with other founders to build out their tech products and help them avoid some of the pitfalls that... (laughs) That we had experienced with our own startup. Smart,
0: and sometimes you know people hang their head or they shy away from their existing vendor relationships or their existing client relationships because they're a bit ashamed that their product didn't work out or their venture to go and sort of say, "But I love working with you, and I want and I want to continue to work with you, and I would love to find a way for us to continue to work together." I think that's really smart, and it helps keep those relationships in in good stead. Exactly. Exactly. Julia, when you were thinking about going somewhere else and maybe making a different decision, going off the path with Preline and taking on a full-time job somewhere else, how did you kind of think about that? What frameworks, how do you compartmentalize or characterize your time with Preline as a founder?
1: Um, I, you know, I think that being grateful for the learnings is the best way for me to kind of compartmentalize it and think about that experience. And having the opportunity to work on something that you're passionate about. You know, there's working for money, which you could do. And then there's working because you are truly passionate about what you're working on. And that is where entrepreneurship is unique in that it gives you that opportunity to work on something that you are passionate about. And that never changed with Preline. And as I mentioned at the start, you know, I still wholeheartedly believe in our idea, in the concept of PreLine, now whether or not it had market fit, that was the challenge, right? But I think it's that belief, it's that flame of inspiration that that makes it all worthwhile, in a way. And I know that's not a framework necessarily, but I typically gauge my entrepreneurial invest uh, endeavors in that sense. Like I, I explored lots of different ideas before pre-line. And I always gauged, you know, is this something that I should continue to pursue by it was it something that I continued to wake up in the morning thinking about? And if I just couldn't get it out of my head, if I just kept waking up and thinking about it, then I then I would know this is something that is worth pursuing, even if it's not fully successful, even if I you know, doing side hustle consulting to pay my bills and saying no to trips that my girlfriends are going on because I can't afford them right now because I'm an entrepreneur, right? You know, it's like those things are okay because you're not working for the money. You're working for the fact that you're passionate about what you're working on. So that, I don't know, I guess I I hope that answers your question. Just, I think, that helps when you look back to say, you know, of course it wasn't a waste.
0: Um, No, no, of course. I I think it's just a matter of, you know, you either want to prolong that feeling and want to be back there and want to be successful at it, or you're able to sort of not be able to look back on it fondly until you're really doing something else that you love or doing something else that you feel quote unquote successful in. And so I think it's the rare and, and valuable experience to really look back on it as, what a passion project that I worked on and how much did I learn and how much fun was that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, I don't know, Julia, you are wise beyond your years. Um, (laughs) Tell you, I have my eye on you. I can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, Well, uh, becoming a mother is just the the right on the block. So I can't wait for that to happen. And
1: uh, congrats to you. Uh, Nine days off of the due date. So. (laughs) you're nine days late or you're nine days? No, no, nine nine days until the due date.
0: (laughs) But you are amazing, honestly. All right, last question. Describe yourself by saying three things that you are not. I'm not
1: someone who will just work on something because I'm told to work on it. Or on the flip side of that, I won't keep my opinion to myself if I don't think We're moving in the right direction. I always will be vocal sharing my thoughts with the team that I am working with. I'm not someone who will be happy focusing on the bigger company political dynamics. That never has really interested me. What brings me joy and what I'm very passionate about is more so you know, bringing products to life. And the political side of corporate ladders and things like that, that's never been something that I gravitate toward. And and then finally, I'm not someone who will be content working on something that I don't wholeheartedly believe in. And that's exactly what I was saying before. You know, my, my jobs, when I look back at them, I I have changed jobs when I lose that spark. When I lose that, I wake up in the morning and I'm, I'm excited and I'm thinking about what I'm working on at that company. I am not someone who can just kind of grind grind it out and say, it's fine if I'm not passionate about it. Uh, I'll just continue to forge forward. I really, you know, I think that in any career that I have moving forward, that passion is a necessity for me wherever I land. Passion is the name of the game, Julia.
0: I yeah you're one who pursues it wholeheartedly. And I wish you all of the success in the world. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you,
1: Ashley. This was wonderful.
0: Thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about The Entrepreneur, including booking information, please visit pod617.com slash entrepreneur. The Entrepreneur is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.